Shem Hashem Na'asivin Atzliach, Shul Torah, Bukhem Brahim. We're starting a new week. And Baruch Hashem, we're continuing the series of the Jewish Ashkafa, where uh, you're going to learn a little bit more about Jewish ideology, especially for uh, those of us that are uh, new to the world of Torah, that uh, whether you're a new Baal Tshuva, or uh, perhaps you're uh, a new convert or converting to Judaism, and you're really trying to get a better hold of the Torah. Or better yet, for those people that have uh, chosen to live a life that is uh, not full of Torah, but they're interested in the Torah, but they just can't get their head around the uh, fundamentals of Judaism, uh, the basic principles of faith, and most importantly, the laws of the Torah, because when they hear certain things that don't agree with their uh, uh, modern-day ideology, they uh, easily say this must be wrong, this must be uh, you know, long, long, no longer applicable, and so on and so forth. Tonight's you is going to be for the Refuah Shlemah and Atzlachah Rabah for Rav Ephraim ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah bat Anat, Rabbanit Levana bat Sarah, Avimori David ben Esriah, Imimorati Doris bat Jorah, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch our shiurim and support and help us reach more and more people around the world, Baruch Hashem. Uh, any of you that want to uh, donate and help us with all the amazing things that the organization is doing will uh, now have another reason to donate. Anyone that wants to uh, sponsor the new book, Baruch Hashem by Rabbi Ephraim, uh, this is going to be out in the market in, over the next several months. We just got our samples. This is Rabbi Ephraim's uh, new book. It's only in Hebrew. Bezot Hashem, over time, we'll have it in English as well, but uh, anyone that wants to be a sponsor of this, we're looking to print between uh, fifteen to 25,000 copies. So any of you that want to be a sponsor in this are welcome to do so by joining us, either by contacting me directly, or if you want to just simply donate on the website, bezathashem.org or bhtorah.org. Uh, so with that being said, we have uh, a uh, pretty significant segment of the um, book that we have to cover, which is really talking about one particular subject, which is the wisdom of Shlomo. And although we've discussed this in the uh, previous uh, lectures to a certain extent, this is going to give us a little bit of a different perspective uh, for, uh, for everyone, because once a person knows where they stand, uh, it makes it easier to make a decision, meaning that if a person, let's say, walks into a uh, business or of some kind or some office that has to do with archaeology or science or uh, all types of other uh, technology, all types of other subjects, and uh, he sees that the place is full of geniuses, full of people that are experts in their field, full of people that have, uh, you know, have a lot of expertise and experience. They've uh, been doing this for a very long time, but yet... They, uh, they choose to do things the way they do it. They choose to do things at the place that they do it. Then it makes it easier for a person to make a decision. This is usually why when uh, high sales uh, types of companies are looking to hire people, uh, when uh, they are uh, recruiting people, especially people that uh, are uh, superstars from other companies and they're trying to poach another business, one of the main things that uh, they like to show is the success of the people that are there, uh, that are in this uh, new business, that, uh, you know, this one made this much money, this one bought this house, this one has this car, and if he did all of this here, this means that uh, perhaps you can do the same thing here. 
And uh, it is, there is an element of truth to that to a certain extent. Uh, of course, it requires the person to uh, uh, have uh, the same footsteps uh, as uh, these other people. But the point being is, is that when a person knows that there is already success, there is already experience, there is already a track record at the place uh, that uh, he's looking into, it makes it easier for that person to make a decision. And the same concept goes here. As Shlomo Melech was full of wisdom, but what kind of wisdom did he have? How is it relevant to us today? Uh, and this is one of the things we're going to see. Now, the Chazonish has brought us all types of uh, uh, geniuses from uh, our sages throughout this uh, series. And tonight, tonight, he's going to bring us the Ramban, but also the words of Shlomo Melech himself. And he starts off with the Ramban, Nechmanides, which lived about 750 years ago. And uh, he is the one that wrote the Igeret HaKodesh that we're doing a series on Tuesday nights about Jewish intimacy. Uh, and this, uh, this Ramban, he is uh, not just a genius, not just holy. He's, he's one of the few sages in Judaism that literally covered every single topic in the Torah. He wrote books about everything. He wrote halachic books. He, he wrote commentary on the entire Torah. He wrote commentary on the entire uh, on the, uh, uh, on the Gemara. He wrote a uh, Kabbalah. He wrote about the Musar. Literally, he wrote everything, even anti-missionary. One of the most famous anti-missionary uh, displays in history was the uh, debate that the Ramban was uh, forced to be in uh, in Barcelona. And anyone that wants to... Uh, uh, know all of the extraordinary answers that the Ramban uh, provided uh, to win the debate in Barcelona in front of the uh, the king at the time and uh, the church and pretty much all of the who's who of that time can read the uh, debate in Barcelona by the Ramban, which was also added to the uh, new edition of the Genet HaKodesh uh, that, uh, that was recently published by our dear friend Rabbi Yaakov Bar Nachman, the uh, great uh, 26th generation descendant of the Ramban. So anyway, the Ramban is starting off by letting us know about a book that existed at the time uh, where he learned about Shlomo Melech aside from the Midrash, aside from the Gemara, aside from the Tanakh. Uh, he, there is another book that existed at the time. Uh, and he says, the Ramban says, in the beginning of his commentary on the Torah, he writes, I saw a translated book called The Great Wisdom of Shlomo. And in this book, he says, it says the following. There is no king or ruler that came from a different type of birth. All people enter the world in the same way, and they exit also in the same way. And therefore I prayed, and he, meaning Hashem, gave me a spirit of wisdom and I learned, and the spirit of knowledge came to me. I preferred it to the scepter and the throne. Here the Ramban is telling us what Shlomo Melech, in essence Shlomo Melech's, King Solomon's personal journal of his experience receiving the gift of all gifts from HaKadosh Baruch Hu of the wisdom. And he says that he already knew that uh, you know there are different types of kings that Am Yisrael has had and will have in the future. Uh, but no king will be like him. No king will be like him, and the reason why is because of the wisdom that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him. And one of the reasons, and the ultimate reason, of why Shlomo HaMelech received 
this gift, as the uh, Book of Kings 1 uh, says, Shlomo HaMelech preferred the wisdom over the uh, power and money that other kings preferred. And he says, I preferred this wisdom over the scepter and the throne. And it further continues saying, God is the one who gives knowledge. This, by the way, anyone that is familiar with this uh, particular few words, this is both something that you'll find in the book of Proverbs, that Hashem gives knowledge, but also something that you read uh, usually as a prayer before you start studying uh, Torah. Uh, God is the one who gives knowledge that is free of falsehood, to know how the world was established. Here, Shlomo Melech is in essence telling us something that is of paramount value because the world today has more information readily available for people than any other time in history. With a click of a button, a person can either find information or create information. They could find information on the uh, internet by uh, doing thorough research. Uh, or they could literally create information by uh, simply either, you know, uh, uh, going on artificial intelligence, one of these AI applications uh, that are famous, and uh, simply decide to create a story. Just tell the AI to create a story about, uh, you know, a group of kids that decided to go to uh, play uh, in, the, uh, in the yard and write you a poem about it too. And the AI could literally draft up this whole thing in a matter of seconds. Uh, and you could literally create a whole book of any type that you want uh, within a matter of uh, moments. But the one thing that you don't have with either one of those sources, whether you're finding the information on the internet that already exists that some journalist or some writer or some blogger wrote, or you're creating the information, the one guarantee you do not have is whether this information is true. And in the world of journalism, I don't have to spend any time to uh, prove the fact that the journalists have been proven to be full of falsehood, especially in recent years, uh, where they write one thing and they uh, mean another. The government says one thing, but they really mean another. The truth is on the right. The uh, falsehood is on the left, vice versa. All of this nonsense that's out there has literally destroyed the uh, perception of media altogether over the last several years, but more than anything else, even if a person themselves means well, and they decide that they're going to write a, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, information, they're going to use research. They're going to use research that they're going to find somewhere on the internet, they're going to tell you certain things. Even though their information relies, you know, is in essence quoting certain research, there's no guarantee that the research is actually true. A few uh, examples that are relevant and very, very uh, uh, um, unfortunate uh, that I can give you is, for example, one, many uh, people believe that, uh, especially because of the many writers, I mean, if you simply look at it on Google, this information is still readily available, where people believe that uh, the, uh, you know, if you're going to uh, try to have children at the uh, age of uh, 38, 40, 42, 44, you're running the risk of having deformed babies. Uh, and this is based on so-called research. 
The problem with this research, and especially the people that say that you can't have babies anymore uh, at that age, is the fact that it's relying on research that is quoted everywhere, but very few people actually delve into it and see where is the original root of this research, which is the fact that the original research that everyone is basing it on is research that was done in the 1600s, meaning 400 years ago. 400 years ago. And they're basing it on research that was done in a small community about 400 years ago uh, of a, uh, you know, just a uh, small segment of people where they figured, oh, if they're 40, they're not having any more babies. That means they have problems having kids or they had some kids that were deformed. And therefore, forevermore, anyone that is going to try to have children at that age is bound to failure or bound to problems. Now, this obviously couldn't be further from the truth, as we know firsthand, quite a few examples of women that Baruch Hashem not only uh, got married at a later age in life for different reasons, but also had children uh, at a later stage in life. We actually even have somebody that we know that just had, I think it was their 16th or 17th child, and uh, the woman was uh, in her late 50s, or I think even early 60s. Uh, I don't ask people their age, but I know that they were quite old uh, as far as according to science. So this research is uh, what most people live off of, meaning people make their life's decisions based on this so-called research. If you ask the average person, you know, uh, you know the, uh, the reason why they're not having kids anymore, many times you'll hear, oh, well, listen, I'm too old. What do you mean you're too old? You're only uh, 42 years old. You're only 44 years old. Yeah, well, you know, I don't want to have a kid that's autistic. I don't want to have a kid that has a, a missing nose. I don't want to have a kid. Who said you're going to have it? Oh, it's science. Where'd you read it? It's on the internet. And if it's on the internet, it must be true. So, of course, this is complete nonsense. And uh, when a person lives life without God, they're bound to live a life full of nonsense. So, it's important for a person to know that these types of, uh, these types of uh, things are everywhere. It's not just with this particular study. This is with a lot of different things. Another thing that uh, the, uh, uh, the public schools and universities suffer from, especially uh, you know, in recent years, is their perspe- uh, perspective of uh, intimacy, sexuality, the so-called sexual revolution. Uh, that took place about 80 years ago, uh, where uh, a study came out by a uh, so-called Alfred Kinsey uh, that told people that uh, everything that uh, you are um, afraid of or uh, you're, uh, you know, you're staying away from really is being done behind closed doors. You know, everyone commits adultery. Everyone is a pedophile. Everyone is a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, LGBTQ. Everyone is uh, promiscuous. And this had so much influence, so much influence on society. This book by Alfred Kinsey, Machimov Zichro, he actually came out with two books. Uh, one for the man and one for the woman. One to destroy the perspective of all men and one to destroy the perspective of all women for the next 80 years. This had such groundbreaking impact 
on the world that it literally went into the education system. So much so that until this day, the information quoted from his book is in the textbooks in public schools, is in the law of America, uh, where uh, many of the uh, um, punishments that, uh, that were used to be given to uh, rapists and pedophiles and all types of sexual criminals were minimized because one of the government officials that read this report said, well, if we don't lower the, uh, the, uh, the penalties for all of these behaviors, we're practically going to put 95% of Americans in prison. Why? Because according to Professor Kinsey, everyone is a pervert, promiscuous, deformed mentality type of person. And this has grown drastically. The pornography industry spearheaded from this as one of the uh, uh, major uh, uh, students of uh, Kinsey's reports were the founders of the uh, uh, Playboy uh, uh, pornography uh, magazine and uh, you know despicable institution uh, and uh, in fact one of the uh, main things that people don't realize is that before Kinsey's report in 1948 America was a relatively conservative country with conservative values where many men and women remained reserved until marriage but this all changed after 1948 when this came out and the, even the government the government of America took the initiative to say how important this report is and how they have to change the law of America because if they don't, technically they'll have to put 95% of Americans in prison because everyone is an adulterer, everyone is uh, LGBTQ, everyone is, uh, you know, is a pedophile. And what they don't realize is that the entire report was based on flawed studies many of which were made against the law, not only the law of the land, but the law of man, where he literally went to different prison cells and interviewed different pedophiles, uh, asking them their experience with children. He even had extensive interviews documented by one of the biggest monsters of the time, which is which was a pedophile that was part of the Nazi Germany, uh, who uh, uh, raped and uh, tormented and, and, and murdered hundreds among hundreds of children, not only because of his perversion and his demented mentality, but also because he wanted to contribute to Kinsey's report. The during the Nuremberg trials, when this monster was being uh, was you know was on trial and they were reading his documents and they're seeing Kinsey's name everywhere in his letters the judge himself said it looks like you are trying to cater to Kinsey almost like he was you know guiding you and the monster says exactly he was the one that was guiding me he told me to go do more he told me to go to go rape more more Jewish kids and more little ones and more infants and more of this now, this Rabotai Kavim is public knowledge. This is not like a rumor. There are books written by different experts. One of the uh, leading experts is a uh, uh, Jewish professor that uh, she really uh, spearheaded this, uh, this extensive uh, exposure 
of, uh, of Kinsey, but even after she exposed him and has written a half a dozen or so books uh, about this, still, unfortunately, the material is going to be in the textbooks, in the law of America, and not only that, it's in England, it's in China, it's all over the world. The, the degradation of morality that has happened in society over the last 80 years was spearheaded by this flawed research based on pedophiles, murderers, and rapists, and different types of people that Kinsey forced, that were, that were employees of him or volunteers, that he forced them to actually do these things behind closed doors to society, but in his, in his attic, in his house. And he himself was LGBTQ, but he hid it because he was married with kids. The point being is, is that if a person is now writing a so-called sexual education book today, they're basing their research without a shadow of a doubt on the Kinsey reports. If you are in the field of sexuality, a very large part of your predisposition is based on this report, on these books. So, of course, anyone that's aware of this is going to say, wait, well, if you wrote your book, your thesis, your whole course in college or, or grad school based on this monster's report, then not only is he a monster, you are a monster just like him. And the point being is, is that when a person looks at information, they assume it's right because they either lack the ability to get more, you know, more valid information, or they simply trust the source because it has a few acronyms after the name, or it has certain popularity or notoriety. This is not like the Torah. And that's in essence one of the things that Shlomo HaMelech is telling us here, is that HaKadosh Baruch information is the only information that, that's in the Torah that is not one that you need to question. Is not one that is going to be comprised of lies. Where will you find the lies in religion? You will find it in all of the offshoots. In all of the offshoots of Judaism. If you stick to the sources, you stick to the Masoret, the tradition that we've had for the last several thousand years, whether it's the written Torah, the oral Torah, uh, the Mishnah, the Gemara, which is also called the Talmud, the, uh, the Poskim, like the, uh, uh, the Rambam, the Ramban, the, uh, the Rosh, the Ritva, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, uh, different great sages among Hasidut, Bale Musar, all of the different traditions, the Zohar Kadosh, all of these different things, you'll see that at some point or another, every single one of them was put up to the test by great sages that were experts in their field, that spend their life making sure that the information at hand is valid. And there are certainly times in the Gemara that you will find that there is a change of, uh, uh, of lingo, of spelling, or even terminology that is used by different sages for specific lines. And the sages don't run away from this. They say, listen, this is what we have on our... Uh, Vilna edition, but there are there is a sage like the Gondi Vilna or some of the other sages that were mentioned that have a different version where theirs has a few different words. 
Meaning that we're not going to say, listen, this is the only one that's right, and that's it. Take it as final. No. If there is a different edition, if there is a different terminology, different words, anywhere else, it's noted in there. Meaning that everything is put up to the test. Everything is has a truth, uh, truth meter to it. And you don't have to look everywhere to hope that you are actually going to find the truth. When it comes to the Torah, you're going to find the truth because there are literally countless sages, countless sages throughout the generations that have put everything up to the truth test, especially people that, you know, are, are, are delving into the Torah as their whole life. They're going to want to make sure that everything that they're saying, everything that they're writing, everything that they're thinking is in the level of truth and not something that is in falsehood. On the other hand, in the offsuit of Judaism, whether you're going to go to the, uh, the heretics among Judaism, which is, let's say, the Karaites or the Reform, uh, the conservative, the, uh, the so-called modernizers of Judaism, you'll find endless amount of falsehood, and you could easily find where that falsehood began if you look far enough. Where you'll see over here, they changed things. It was true until this point, and that's when they changed things. Whether it was reform that started a new Shulchan Aruch about 200 years ago, or it was the conservative that, uh, that did it uh, slightly after, uh, you know, and unfortunately, the, uh, the other heretics out there that have uh, tried to change Judaism, and they're still doing it until this day, but they're not the only ones. You also had Christianity and Islam as offshoots of Judaism to a certain extent where they are saying that the uh, Old Testament, which is our Torah, is the truth, it was the truth, it is the truth, until they started. Until they started. Meaning that if you ask the Christians, and you go keep going back, backtracking all the way to the beginning, before Yoshke came to the world, what was the truth in the world? Because there were only two options. There was idol worship and there was Judaism. What was the truth until this point? They'll tell you it was Judaism. Tell you it was the Torah. They'll tell you it was the sages. That was the truth. But when we got the false testament, that's when uh, everything changed. The law changed, Yoshke changed, and everything became a free-for-all. Same concept with Islam. What was the truth until 1400 years ago when little Muhammad decided to lie to the world and tell him that an angel spoke to him? What happened? What was the truth until then? They'll tell you. The, uh, the Torah was the truth. Even the Quran itself says that the people of the book possess the truth. If there's ever a mistake that you find in the Quran, go to the people of the book, meaning go to the Jews. They're the ones that possess the truth. But now that the Quran is here, they're saying, okay, let's, uh, you know, now we have the truth. So the point is, is that when you see all of these different arguments, every time you go back to the original, you're always going to see that no one has ever said that the Torah is fake in the beginning. They only started saying things like that, only started challenging the Torah after the fact when they had an agenda. But the reality is, the same Torah that was true then is the same Torah that we have now, and it's the same truth that was then and the same truth that we have now. Where will you find the falsehood? Everywhere else. Everywhere else, all of the different offshoots, all of the different branches that uh, of mutations that came out of the Torah, 
because people did not want to abide by the law. And they wanted to, in essence, create a new law. A new law that gives them a nation, a new law that gives them a money-making opportunity, a new law that gives them control over people, and all types of other things. So Shlomo Melech starts off by letting us know that he is very well aware that everyone comes into the world the same way everyone leaves the same way. There is no virgin birth. There is nobody that uh, is a, uh, not going to die uh, unless it's specified in the Torah, like Eliyahu Navi, which was an exception. Generally speaking, we're talking about everyone leaves the world. Everyone comes into the world. But one thing that he has uh, uh, discovered that is the truth of all truth that Akadosh Baruch Hu is the one that decides how much knowledge you're going to possess. You can decide how much effort you put into acquiring the knowledge, but Hashem will decide how much knowledge you'll actually end up having. And one of the main things that you can rely on when the information is coming from Akadosh Baruch Hu is that it's going to be free of falsehood. Furthermore, the book, The Great Wisdom of Shlomo says, to know how the world was established and the actions of the zodiac signs, the beginning and the end, the average times of the zodiac, and the orders of the stars and movements, the nature of domestic animals and the temper of the beast, the strength of the wind, the thoughts of man, the relationships of the trees and the powers of the roots, all the hidden and the revealed things I knew. See, here's Shlomo Melech is in essence telling us the extraordinary level of wisdom that he was gifted by a Kadosh Baruch Hu. It didn't bother Shlomo that he didn't know how to make money like his next door neighbor. It didn't bother Shlomo Amelech to know how to make a YouTube channel. It didn't bother Shlomo Amelech to know how to make everyone like me, how to be charismatic, how to have, no, it didn't bother, what did it bother him? What bothered him is how the world works. How the world works. Different movements of the stars. Why this star has a certain shape versus a different star. Why this star has a certain impact on the world while a different has less impact. Why this one has an impact on the world at this time while another one has impact on the world in a different way at a different time. So Shlomo HaMelech was bothered by things that the average person out there doesn't even think of. And here Shlomo HaMelech is telling us he was bothered by all of this and he wanted to know. He wanted to know the nature of the domestic animals, the temper of the beast. Why? Why do I need to know? Why do I need to know about all of these? Because Chazal teaches that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created men, he took the, a piece of every one of the animals and he put it into a damarishon. This is why, for example, you'll have some animals, they'll only eat grass, they'll eat straw. That's what they're going to eat. Some animals, they're going to eat meat. Some animals are going to eat different types of things in the ocean. Some animals will only eat things from the land. Mankind, on the other hand, consumes everything. Mankind consumes milk, like some animals. 
mankind consumes meat like some animals mankind consumes vegetables and trees and grass like some animals they'll tell you they're vegetarian but perhaps in hiding they may not be but the key is that mankind consumes everything just like all of the animals combined so Shlomo Melech wanted to know why why does this animal eat this why does he eat grass now if you tell a man listen from now on you have to be a vegetarian why because it's uh bad for your health to eat uh, meat okay fine bad for the health high blood pressure diabetes all types of horrible things that happen to people of course all decreed by kadosh and the man says fine i won't eat meat anymore one day passes two days pass three days pass he's sick and tired of this grass he goes back to the doctor he says hey doc listen you're telling me that i have to lose weight you're telling me that i have to eat grass but listen i thought about it the cow also eats grass but it's still fat so what's to say that if i eat all this grass that uh, all these salads and everything that uh, i'm gonna lose weight well listen sir you're right uh no one really ever put it that way but you know that the cow has a different digestive system it has multiple stomachs and it has this and has that needs a quote okay fine he goes back home and he goes back to eating the grass the vegetables the, the whatever he's eating over there he's suffering he hates it he can't wait to eat a piece of steak and one day he does now on the other hand if you tell the cow listen cow you from now on you have to eat meat the cow look at you funny and tell you moo moo give me the grass give me the straw no 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 you have to eat meat no meat i don't have the tools for meat okay fine let's try a different customer you go a lion the gemara says the lion is a meat eater the lion he's a meat eater you put some straw in front of the lion don't listen mr lion i know you're the king of the jungle and all that good stuff but here you're in a zoo so you're king of nothing you're you're gonna eat whatever we tell you so we're not giving you any more meat we're gonna give you grass we're gonna give you the same food like the cow we're trying to save money what's gonna happen lion's not gonna eat and if you don't feed him eventually he'll die why the lion is a meat eater so Shlomo Melech was asking, why is it that if you tell men, don't eat meat, eat vegetables, eat grass, eat all of these other things, he's not really interested. He wants to eat other things. Even the ones that, you know, do all of these diets to preserve their health, to maintain health, to, 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 uh, to improve their health, whatever it is, at some point or another they still crave meat now it perhaps it can get to a point where they get so used to eating grass that they feel like uh you know like the, this is the best thing and this is all they want but nonetheless the initial phase is difficult they want to eat meat they want to eat poultry they want to eat something with flesh but the animal on the other hand if you go to the cow and you tell eat meat says no I'm not interested in meat why isn't the cow interested in meat the man likes it so much 
You go to the line, tell them eat straw. Not interested. Not in vegetables, not in fruits. Give me some dead animals and I'm happy. In fact, even if they're alive, I'm happy. In fact, next time you come, I'm going to eat you. I want meat. I don't want uh, vegetables. I'm not on a diet. Why? Why is the lion only willing to eat this? Shlomo Amelech wanted to know this. He wanted to know how the world operates. Why? Why this? Why that? Why? That's what Shlomo Amelech wanted to know. And that, he says, all of the hidden and all of the revealed information out there was revealed to me meaning he knew why he knew why furthermore he also wanted to know the relationship between the trees what relationship between the trees did you ever notice that if there is two living trees or even a thousand living trees and they're growing right next to each other no one will hurt the other where they're going to grow and their leaves are not going to hit each other even though they'll be really close they won't hit each other but if you have a tree growing next to a house that's made out of wood the tree could literally grow through the house why it's a dead tree the house is a dead tree there's no respect for dead trees but if it's a living tree gotta respect him he has his space i have my space the Gemara says that's because the trees are alive. And even scientists in the last couple of decades have confirmed this. It's, uh, there's a famous book called the, uh, the Secret Life of Plants, which we brought in previous lectures in the past about Torah and science and so on. Interesting book. They even found the uh, uh, proof of different things that the sages said about the secret life of the seed, where they literally saw how the seed of a person, of a man, that leaves his body is in essence connected to the source where when the person comes into the room the seed that came out of his body goes crazy as if they're looking forward to seeing their father proving what the rambam said 800 years ago about how there is literally a life in the seed that when a man wastes seed they're the equivalent of committing murder so now Shlomo Amalek says, I want to know the secrets about the trees. I want to know the secrets about the trees, their relationships, the power of their roots. Shlomo Amalek found out all of the hidden and the secrets, all of the hidden and the revealed information about trees. So much so that he knew the root of every single tree of where it connects to Jerusalem and he was able to grow every type of tree in Jerusalem he knew the soil that it needed he knew where exactly it was in Jerusalem the Rav Chai Gaon Rav Chai Gaon one of the Geonim thousand years ago he writes that the different Geonim different sages at the time they knew that there was a language spoken between the trees not in the same level as the sages of the Gemara 
the Tanaim, that literally some of them knew how to speak to different species, animals, birds, and so on. But they had a different way of communicating. How so? Avchayon said they would actually tie different bedsheets, like fabric, on the uh, branches of the trees, and they would see that the branches move in such a way where it flaps in a certain way at different times, and another tree flaps at a certain times, and they knew they were communicating. And they knew what this actually meant. Now, perhaps you can conduct a similar study today, but all you're going to see is, you know, the, the bed sheet moving, perhaps, bed sheet not moving, perhaps, but either way, you're not going to know what to do with that information. The Geonim of a thousand years ago knew what to do with this information. Shlomo Melech knew further. As the Gemara says in Masechet Avodah Zarah, that when a tree dies someone chops off a tree it screams so loud that the scream is heard at the other side of the world and the reason why man is not privy to that sound is because you wouldn't be able to live life if you actually heard everything that's going on around you the same thing happens with everything else everything has a life recently a group of israeli scientists uh, discovered that there's the same type of reaction in fruits when you cut a tomato, potato, or, or all types of vegetables and, uh, and fruits. There's a certain sound wave that comes from them if you are in the right frequency. So there is a life in everything that's out there. Shlomo Melech knew the, the hidden and the revealed. In the book of Kings 1, in chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, the Chazonish says, And all of Shlomo's drinking vessels were made of gold. For Shlomo had ships of Tarshish on the sea, together with the ships of Hiram. Hiram was another king, which we'll talk about in a moment. He had ships. Shlomo had ships. And he partnered up with this Hiram, where once every three years, the ships of Tarshish would come back bearing gold. They were full of gold. And the Targum Yonatan says that once in three years, the ships from Africa arrived bearing gold, bringing this gold to Shlomo Amelech. Today we know that gold mines of Shlomo in Africa where he mined the gold, and today one needs to have much practical knowledge in order to extract gold from Africa. Shlomo Amalek had such vast wisdom that he didn't need the equipment of the miners of today. Anyone that's familiar with the business of mining, it's a very uh, heavy investment, investment-intensive business where you have to, aside from searching the world for different places, in different countries where not only do you have permission to mine there but there's actually something you find it takes years to confirm that this particular place has the resources that you're looking for because if you're a metal miner but you find something else it's of no use to you You can sell it but it's not good for your investors because your investors were betting on the fact that you're going to find gold or copper or silver or whatever other uh, uh, resource you're looking for if you're looking for oil but you found gold great you found gold but we don't need gold we're an oil company so 
each and sometimes they find nothing or sometimes they find that it's just simply too difficult to mine in this particular piece of land because of the way that the land is structured so it's an extraordinary amount of investment made into the discovery into the discovery of these different fields these different places of land in the ocean to find the resources and even after you do all of the preliminary studies in order to have some type of educated guess of how much resources there then they have to assess how much it would cost to take out every ounce of gold every ounce of silver every uh everything that you want to take out of it every gallon of uh uh, of oil whatever it is that you're taking out of the field they have to do a preliminary study of the actual uh, place itself and how difficult it is to mine there and then after you've assessed it you also have to assess how much do you think is there how much do you think is actually in this place meaning if it costs you uh you know uh, uh 400 an ounce to mine gold and gold now is 2000 you're going to get investors to invest in you why it's, it's a big profit okay so it's going to take you know 10 years 15 years to get this gold out of there but if you assume that the price of gold will stay where it is at the 2000 level during that time you're going to invest in there the problem is that gold doesn't stay exactly where it is it goes up it goes down it crashes it, it, it spikes up and that's why many times when you see these major spikes or crashes in the prices of, of different commodities many companies go bankrupt why because when they made the assessment they made the assessment it's going to cost four hundred dollars and they're going to make sixteen hundred but the, the price crashed it went down to a thousand it went down to a thousand and they're figuring this thousand may be it it may even go lower so now the profit is only 600 is it still worth it to mine for the 600 you're gonna say yeah of course it is because you're thinking in a regular consumer's brain the reality is they're thinking from an investment perspective there could be cheaper ways to do it could be new technology could be new ways could be different better fields uh could be simply not worth it to mine until the price uh goes back up and just leave this uh this uh field uh, this place dormant for the next five or ten years until prices stabilize and perhaps even the mining costs go lower this type of assessment and much more extensive than what I just explained has to go into every single place that's going to mine whether it be gold copper oil or anything else now Shlomo Melech he did the same type of money mining but without all of that why because since he had this overwhelming divine wisdom gifted to him he was not only able to tell you where there is gold he was able to give you the exact point of where the gold is so you didn't have to search you just simply had to find the point he told you follow the map exactly he would tell you exactly how much gold is there and how much you can get out of there within how much time and how much resources needed to be spent and therefore the ships would come on a regular basis like an amazon delivery every three years they would come full of gold 
Trust me when I tell you, anyone that's familiar with the mining world is going to start looking for Shlomo HaMelech books right now and try to say, wait, where? Where is it? Did he disclose what's the secret? (laughs) Because here you're talking about literally hundreds of billions of dollars that are spent today on something that Shlomo HaMelech simply knew. The Gemara in Masechet Abu Dazara, brought by the Chazonish in page 44a, shows of a, another extraordinary level of wisdom, not by Shlomo, but rather by his father David. David Amelech, the Gemara says, wore a golden crown on his head that was extraordinarily heavy. It weighed a kikal. And it did not weigh on his head though. Even though this crown, if you lifted it, it would be very, very heavy. Needless to say, if you put it on somebody's head, it's very heavy. You can't wear something that's very heavy. The way that David Amelech structured everything, it didn't weigh on his head. It was practically levitating in the air, but on his head. It did not wear on his head because it had a magnet in it. And Rashi, about 900 years ago, explains that the magnet had the characteristics of pulling upwards. So being attached to the crown, it would pull it upwards, and it was planned so that its pulling ability equaled that of a kikar of gold, so that the crown did not float above David Melech's head, nor did it weigh on it. And the Tosfot explains that the magnet was affixed to the ceiling of the room directly above the royal throne of David. And it would attract the crown so that it wouldn't weigh on David Amelech's head, but was also balanced that it wouldn't lift the crown up. And according to all the explanations, it is one of the wonders of nature. See, here we see that Shlomo Amelech was not the only one that was blessed with extraordinary wisdom. His father, David, also had wisdom well above the norm needless to say even the norm of geniuses to have a crown that's very heavy anybody can do it just get some money go to somebody that knows how to make crowns an expert in the field and it'll make you the heaviest crown if you want you can make you a crown that's 500 pounds if you want but to make a crown that's going to levitate in such a way where as heavy as it was David is not going to feel it. He's not going to feel the weight. That not only requires a special expertise in crowns, that requires a special expertise in metals and also a special expertise in architecture because the, um, the whole building had to be structured in such a fashion that wherever David went, the crown was in essence pulled up just enough with just enough precise pressure that it's still on his head but he doesn't feel the pressure no one in the world can do such a thing today no one in the world can do such a thing today and this is wisdom by david amelech so the nature of all animals the extraordinary wisdom of the plants and the trees metals 
mining, we see that this wisdom wasn't just Torah like people would think. They had wisdom of the ways of the world. And the reality is, Rabotai, is that if you delve into anything in the world and how it is, you will always see that all of it stems to the will of God. All of it stems to the Torah. If you ask question of why, far enough times, you're always going to eventually arrive at Hashem. For example, if you say, listen, there's a chair. Why does the chair have four legs? Why does the chair have four legs? Well, it has four legs because it needs balance. Why does it need balance? Because if it has less than these uh, four legs, it's going to be, uh, it's not going to have as much balance. Even if you put it on three legs, it's certainly not going to have as much balance as, uh, as the uh, four legs. And if it's two, it's not going to have balance at all and it's no longer a chair. Put some wheels on it and it becomes a bicycle, but certainly not a chair. But why do you need balance? Well, that's because there's uh, gravity. And the gravity is going to pull you. Well, why does gravity pull you? Well, that's because of the magnetic field in, in the world and, and how the world is structured. Well, why is the world that way? In so many words, the more you ask why, the sooner you will arrive at the conclusion, which is, this is the will of God. In the world of science, you're going to arrive, well, we don't know. We don't know. You say, okay, why is a chair? Chair is built, we know. It has four legs, because it needs balance. Why do you need four legs? Because of gravity, fine. Why does it gravity? Because of whatever science explanation they're going to give you, fine. Why is this particular scientific explanation you have the way it is? Because of some other scientific explanation, fine. Why is that scientific explanation that way? We don't know. What? We don't know. Why is the world rotating this way? Why is the sun that way? Why is the uh, atmosphere this way? Why is the solar system that way? Why, why, why? We don't know. The answer in the world of Torah is, we know. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. In regards to everything, you'll eventually arrive at the same conclusion, this is the will of God. In the world of science, you'll arrive at a conclusion of, we don't know. Same concept of people, that want to be atheists. The reason why I say want to be atheists is because no atheist is really sure about his own beliefs, hence the reason why he continues disputing it. He continues fighting for it. He continues trying to prove it. He continues trying to debate it. If you possess the truth, you don't need to prove anything to anyone. But the atheist will continue. Now if you ask the atheist, where did everything come from? Oh, well, we came from uh, monkeys. Fine. Where do the monkeys come from? Oh, the monkeys came from the uh, lizards. Fine. Where do the lizards come from? Well, the lizards, they came from the fish. No problem. Where did the fish come from? Well, the fish came from uh, some, uh, some amoeba. No problem. Where did the amoeba come from? The amoeba came from some cell that went through a process of meiosis. Fine. Where did the amoeba or the cell come from? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, actually, we do know there was an explosion, and the explosion... Okay, fine. What exploded? What exactly exploded? You're saying that everything started from a cell. Fine. Let's just say we agree. Everything started from a cell. One cell. 
went through meiosis, went through mitosis, became you. No problem. Fine. Where did the cell come from? Came from the explosion. What exploded? What exploded? The cell? So where did the cell come from? No, it wasn't the cell that exploded. The cell was the outcome of the explosion. So what exploded exactly? Oh, it was a bunch of stuff. So it wasn't the cell that started everything. Something else started everything. That, that explosion. Yeah, exactly. Now you're getting it. What exploded? What's the first cause that exploded? What? No, you don't understand. It was just over a long period of time. Fine. Long time, long time. Let's just say it's a zillion years. No problem. Time. Time is not a factor. What exploded? What exploded exactly to make up the first cell? Or was it the first cell that exploded? Either way, it's the same exact question. Where this first cause came from? And you know what the answer is? They don't know. Why? The only thing that would explain first cause is the Torah, which is God. You can call it whatever you want, but that's what the Torah is. So you're saying that the first cause, we don't know. But in reality, there's only one answer that would fit which is a divine being of some kind, a superpower. And that superpower, by definition, is not subject to the rules of the creation. Because if he's subject to the rules of the creation, then he is a creation himself. And then you go back to the same question and say, well, where did that come from? So you're going to end up in the same exact conclusion of where's the first cause? So... A, by definition, the first cause is not subject to the same rules of the creation, is not subject to time, is not subject to space. Guess what? You're defining God. You may want to call it something else, but you're defining the God of Israel. And that's what the first 150 pages of the book Chovot Alevavot, Duties of the Heart, describes how it is impossible to be intellectually honest and an atheist after reading these pages. Why? Simple. All of the different things that you want to say that could happen, would happen, always arrive at a first cause. Call it whatever you want to call it. We call it the God of Israel. So, the beautiful part is, is that since this first cause, since this Akadosh Baruch Hu is not only not subject to the rules of his creation, not subject to the time and space of his creation, not subject to anything of his creation, is superior to his creation, then needless to say, since the creation knows some information, so does the creator. That's a safe assumption. That's a given. If the creation itself knows... That if I write a book of instructions for building something that people can follow, this book is going to be paramount to the actual creation itself. Why? Because if I just create something and there's no book that's going to go along with it, people can get my invention and they're not going to know how to use it. So the book itself is in essence even more important than the creation itself. Why? Because if I don't know what to do with this creation, I may think it's a ball. I may think it's a weapon. I may think it's food. I may think it's a chair. I may think it's whatever it is because I don't know what it is. But if you give me uh, instructions, 
then I'll know what it is. The creation knows this. That's why everything comes with instructions. I had a, some upgrades to my setup in my office recently, so I had to buy some new stuff. And guess what? The mouse, little mouse, little mouse that you need to move the computer, it came with instructions. And I tell somebody, I said, well, I've used the mouse before. Well, don't they know that? They know. But you didn't use our mouse. And our mouse has instructions. Okay, fine. I got a speaker. Speaker for the system. Now, I've used speakers before. I've been using speakers for decades. But guess what? The speaker came with instructions. Now, what would you need me to know other than just put it this thing into this hole? It came with instructions. Why? Just in case you never used the speaker, just in case you didn't use this speaker, this speaker has to come with instructions. And every little piece of equipment has to come with instructions. Why? Every manufacturer, that's in essence the creation, knows that his creation must carry instructions in order for the users, the consumers, to know how to use this product. So if the creation knows this, it's safe to believe, so does the creator. The creator that created this entire creation, we call the world, we call mankind, we call society, civilization. All of it is the creator's creation. Regardless of how you and what you believe started it all, obviously this superpower that we call Hashem, we call Akadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem means the name because the name is so holy we don't just say it outside of saying verses or uh, saying a, uh, a prayer. Akadosh Baruch Hu means blessed be He. He knows that in order for His creation to know what to do in this world and how to do it, He had to give instructions those instructions were given to millions of us all at the same time at Mount Sinai and nobody around the world refuted it including the enemies of Amalek and the Canaanites nobody refuted it in fact no one refuted it for over a thousand years no one refuted it when the New Testament that's also we call false testament came to the world nearly 2,000 years ago, didn't refute what happened at Mount Sinai. When the Islam Quran came 1,400 years ago, didn't refute what happened at Mount Sinai. Everyone agrees that we all got, all of the Jewish people, got a divine revelation by the creator may his name be blessed millions of us at the same time had divine revelation seeing and hearing his voice we got the instructions written instructions oral instructions of how to conduct ourselves in this world how to live in this world the secrets of life the purpose of life everything you need to know is all there so now 
for all of these thousands upon thousands of years this has been readily available to all of us over 3,000 years now of course along the way as I said there's been all types of heretics apikosim idolaters and simply enemies of the holy Torah of the instruction said that have come along that say all you know they all say something similar the original is holy the original is true but something has changed along the way either there is a new edition even though there was no new divine revelation you would think if there's a new edition then the new edition would be no less spectacular than the first one at Mount Sinai but that wasn't the case furthermore they say no it wasn't a new edition it was just added added to it so again where's the divine revelation where's the proof of this they don't have no problem so the new edition the continuation whether it's Quran New Testament whatever you say it must agree with the original because we all agree that the original is true and it was true it is true and everyone agreed that it was true you don't agree that it stopped that it was true until you at your point so that means that if you're a continuation you have to agree with it not contradict it so how come in our book it says 70 people came down to Egypt with Yaakov Avinu in your book it says 75 how come it says that in our book that Haman and Paro lived over a thousand years separate from each other but the Quran says that they were friends how come it says all types of things in the Torah that are not anywhere near what it says in the New Testament or the Quran why does your new book new religion contradict something that everyone agreed is true until you came along now of course we've had many discussions about this but one thing that we have to cover even further is for people that go into the world of Torah and say listen I believe the Torah is divine I believe the Torah is true and that's great but they still end up in the wrong destination how so they figure that since they're learning Torah and they've been learning Torah for a year two years three years five years ten years however long it is usually it's the ones with less time think they know a lot more than they do and they figure that since they know how to read and since they've read a little bit they figure that their opinion also counts and they can also comment on the Torah they could also interpret the Torah they could also tell you what certain things mean based on their understanding and that's where that's where the arrogance of man brings his downfall and one of the greatest examples of that is actually mentioned here where it says that in the book of Kings Shlomo HaMelech had a deal had a deal with Hiram Hiram Melech Tzu who is Hiram Melech Tzu 
In the book of Kings, in chapter 5, in verse number 15, it says that Hiram was a king, a king of Tzul. In English, it's Tyr. I don't know how they got Tzul to Tyr, but that's the translation. And Hiram made a deal with Shlomo. How did this deal come along? Hiram was also friends with Shlomo Amelech's father, David. And he had a deal with David where he would uh, give him the uh, ships in order to, uh, and also deliver cedar wood for David to build the, uh, his palace with it. So he was very good friends with David. He was good friends with Shlomo. He uh, made a business deal with Shlomo where he gave him the ships. He also gave him wood to build the Bet HaMikdash. Shlomo Melech sent him a uh, uh, message that he wanted to uh, get the wood from him because this divine wisdom that he has uh, is, uh, tells him that uh, he has to get the wood, specific wood to build uh, the Bet HaMikdash and the best of that type comes from where Hiram has access to and he wants to do the business with him and they do business and Shlomo Melech pays him an extraordinary amount of money. He literally gives him a city of gold, where even the floor is gold. Shlomo Amelech, since he knew how to mine, how to get gold, he even had different types of gold that doesn't exist in the world today. Uh, uh, one piece of gold, the Gemara says, was Zav Shemulit Zav, gold that breeds gold, meaning you take one bar of gold, you put it in a drawer, the next day it has two bars of gold. It gives birth to new gold. So, Shlomo Amelech didn't have just the traditional gold of today. He had different types of gold. Endless supply of gold. So he was able to pay huge amounts of gold to Hiram. And Hiram became extraordinarily wealthy from this. Where does Hiram come from? Now if a person just looks at it, they say, listen, Hiram was a king. But if you look at the commentators... And you see that Hiram wasn't just a king of that time. Hiram was over a thousand years old. In fact, he was probably closer to 1500, I think, when he died. Where do we hear about Hiram the first time? In the book of Genesis. In chapter 38, we hear that the story of Yehuda, where it says... It was at that time that Yehuda went down from his brothers and turned away towards the Adulamite man whose name was Chira. Here we see that Chira is Chiram. Same person. And he was friends with Yehuda, the great, 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 great grandfather of David Melech. Only thing is, he lived nearly a thousand years before this. He was friends. He was friends with Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, the, uh, the father of the tribe of Yehuda, which is Yehuda himself, the son of Yaakov. And he was in the, involved in the whole story with Tamar. And he was friends with Yehuda. And because he was a good friend of Yehuda, Hashem blessed him with longevity. He was a righteous person. And 
Hashem blessed him with longevity. He literally lived over a thousand years. So now when a person lives over a thousand years, obviously he acquires an extraordinary amount of experience and wisdom. He has literally an endless amount of time to learn. He's surrounded by good people, smart people, righteous people, Yehuda, David, Shlomo. So obviously he himself becomes a genius. He himself becomes extraordinarily wise, has more experience than everybody else combined, and now he becomes extraordinarily wealthy. So you would think this righteous person, surrounded by wisdom, surrounded by righteous people, this guy, he should be Mashiach if anything. Wrong. Why? Gavat Adam Tashpilenu. The pride of man leads to his downfall. Hiram, although he was righteous for a long time, and he was rewarded handsomely by a Kadosh Bochu with good friends, with good long, long life, like the times of even more than the times of Noah. At this point, Hiram is still on his righteous path and he does business with Shlomo. But shortly after this, when Hiram acquires an extraordinary amount of wealth from these deals, Hiram decides to build himself a palace unlike any other. A palace that resembles the knowledge that he's acquired. What knowledge? Knowledge from a Torah. What knowledge from a Torah? He heard from the sages throughout all of this thousand plus years that at Mount Sinai, HaKadosh Baruch Hu opened up the heavens and showed Am Yisrael the seven heavens, seven levels, each one separated from each other by 500 years. How Am Yisrael was able to see all of it, obviously it's all prophetic, Obviously, they were all given supernatural powers to see all of it in order to ultimately show them that He is the only God. That there's nothing else above it all. There's nothing else but Hashem. And even the pro- prophecy that's shown at the end of last week's parasha, that there's not much commentary on, which is at the end of last week's parashat Mishpatim, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, Aaron, the elders, they saw God. What do you mean they saw God? He doesn't have an image. He doesn't have the likeness of an image. And under his feet, there is a stone. What feet? He doesn't have feet. So obviously this is all prophetic language. Each one was given a certain level of prophecy in their level. And the Torah speaks in human language in order for us to understand to a certain extent what we're able to understand. But of course, it's not what it literally says. There is no image that they saw. He's not sitting on something. He doesn't have feet. But the point being is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed a prophecy in last week's Parashat Mishpatim unlike anything else we've ever imagined. And at Mount Sinai, HaKadosh Baruch Hu opened the seven heavens. And each heaven has its own beauty, its own significance, its own purpose. And each one is a certain size of thousands of years. In size, each one is separated by hundreds, if not thousands of years from each other, eventually getting to the Kisei Kavod that's bigger than all of them combined. 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed this to Am Yisrael at Mount Sinai. Each one is separated with fires and water and, and different things. Now, Chiram, with all of this experience of over a thousand years, knowledge of over a thousand years, money that would last more than a thousand years, he wants to be known as the one that had the most extraordinary palace because he arrived at a wrong conclusion. What's the wrong conclusion? If I lived over a thousand years while everybody else died, if I've acquired information beyond a thousand years while everyone else died, if I've acquired enough money to last over a thousand years, and I still feel young, therefore, I'm never going to die. Therefore, I'm God. He decided to deify himself. And in order to prove his so-called false divinity, he built a palace unlike anything else, with extraordinary wisdom, unlike anything else. Each level of the palace, there were seven levels of the palace, each one resembled the knowledge we have about each one of the heavens, resembling it. Separated where you have the ceiling as an ocean. The ceiling is an ocean. Then the higher level, the ceiling looks like the heavens. Then the higher one, the ceiling is like fire. Each one is separated by things that are, in essence, supernatural. It's not like he's not putting bricks with pictures on it. Each one is extraordinary wisdom that he has acquired. And there's no way to get to the seventh level where he is sitting on his throne. Unless you yourself possess superpowers. And he made himself into a god. And this all came to a horrible end for him. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent the prophet Yechezkel hundreds of years after the time of Shlomo, nearly 900 years after Yetziat Mitzrayim, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to the prophet Yechezkel, Go to Chiram Melech Tzur. Give him my message. How do you get to give him the message? What do you give an envelope? Say, hey, there's an email, there's a mail from Hashem? No, you have to go meet him face to face. Yeah, but the palace has seven levels and there's no way to go up the uh, seven levels. That may be a problem for regular people. But for the messengers of God, there is no problems. As soon as Ichezkel gets there, he flies in the air. All the way to the seventh level. Of course, the shocked face, the shocked look on Hiram's face was worth a million words and a million uh, of that currency of that day. And Yechezkel says, I have a message from Hashem for you. The real God. The only God. And he says, Hiram, and 
בגמרא מסכת בבא מציע סז, יחזקאל סז טו חירם. When I created the world, when I created the heaven and the earth, I knew what I'm creating. I knew that one day you're going to come to the world. I knew that one day I was going to create you. I knew that one day I'm going to give you all types of rewards in this world because of the good things you did. But I also knew that you had the inclination to sin. I also knew that you will sin. I knew the future when I was still creating. I knew that you're going to deify yourself because of the wisdom that I've given you. I knew that you're going to deify yourself because of the lengthy years that I've given you. I knew that you're going to deify yourself because of the money that I've given you. And because I knew you before you even came to this world, I decided to create mankind with holes in it in order to remind them that they're human. What holes? The holes of the digestive system. Where you consume my beautiful world. You take a beautiful apple, a banana, or any type of fruit, any vegetable, any of these precious, good-smelling creations that I've created. And you consume them in order to live. But they don't stay that way. Once they go into your human body, they become waste. They become filthy, they become smelly, they become disgusting. And then they ultimately testify to such when they exit your body. And I created this digestive system because of you. In so many words, because of all of the arrogant people that think that they know more than God, that think that they know more than the messengers of God, think that they know more than the instructions of God. That's why I created the digestive system. Because as great as you think you are, and as much as I've given you that you think you acquired, whether it be knowledge or money or otherwise, at the end of it all, you are reminded each day that you are a human, that whatever you consume turns into filth and reminds you of your loneliness. of your insignificance, of your end. And this is why, Rabotai Karim, when a person looks into the Holy Torah, they're supposed to find God and not only fear Him and ultimately fall in love with Him, but also recognize their own nothingness, their own insignificance, especially when they have less knowledge of him and his purpose. But the more you acquire knowledge of the Torah, the more you're supposed to realize how insignificant you are and how much in debt you are to the Creator. Not how much he owes you or how great you are, because you realize the more you learn about Hashem, the more you realize that nothing is within your own power. The money you have, He gave you. The skills you have, He gave you. The possessions you have, He gave you. 
the life you have, He gives you. Everything you have, He gives you. Whatever you do is literally inconsequential. Why? Because it depends on the power He instills in you. So when a person wants to say that there is no God, it's not a belief. It's not a belief. It's simply a denial. A denial of an obligation. A rejection of reality. Because as long as you are intellectually honest, you're going to ask why. And ultimately you will realize that the real answer is beyond your comprehension. Now, when a person learns the truth, you would assume that they would arrive at exactly where we have arrived. They arrive at the truth, they arrive at fear of heaven, love of Hashem, confidence in Hashem, but many times, unfortunately, you see that people break off into new branches of reform, of modernism, of all types of things. How so? Same concept as Chiram. At some point along the way, they certainly weren't as blessed as Hiram. They certainly did not have the longevity or the wisdom of Hiram. But they had the same arrogance as Hiram. Where they thought they know more than the tradition. They know more than the experts. They know more than the holy sages that dedicated their lives to the Torah. And even if they said, maybe I don't know more, but I know just as much. So I can contradict what the Rambam says. I can disagree what Rabbi Yosef Karo said. I can disagree with what the sages said of this time, of previous times. And in so many words, they make themselves into a little mini Hiram, full of arrogance, full of filth, with a horrible end. Because after this message that Yechezkel sent face to face to Hiram, and as he flew away, Hiram knew that his end was near, and his end was going to be horrible. As Hashem sent Nebuchadnezzar with clear instructions of what to do the Hiram and how to topple over his entire seven levels palace. And after that, cut Hiram into little pieces and feed him to the dogs because he did not even deserve a proper burial. This is the end of all of those enemies of God or His messengers. Because the messengers are representatives of the King Himself. So what Shlomo HaMelech is telling us is in essence that He had all of this wisdom. He had this divine wisdom. Wisdom that allowed Him to know the language of the animals, the trees, the real purpose of animals, the real purpose of the way they were made up, things that the average person or even an expert would not even know the questions exist. And despite all of this information that he had, this knowledge that he had, this wisdom that he had, he still chose God in his Torah. And the same goes for all of the Jewish sages, many of which were experts in different fields many of which were extraordinary geniuses in different fields aside from the Torah. Whether it was the Stipler Gaon, Rav Ovadia, 
Or if we go further back, we go to the Gaon Mivilna, the Arizal, the Ramban, Rashi, the Rambam, Rabbi Akiva, Resh Lakish, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabban Yochanan, Shamai, Aftalion, David Melech, Moshe Rabenu, all of these great people were all geniuses. All possess knowledge well beyond our comprehension. And yet, they all chose the God of Israel and His Holy Torah and all of the same exact rules, mitzvot, and averot, and sins, to comply with all of it, to follow all of it, to live with all of it, and to recognize that all of it is the will of God. Whether you understand them or not is irrelevant. When you see that so many geniuses, geniuses beyond description or definition, chose the Torah, geniuses beyond any other nation, geniuses beyond any other people, geniuses beyond beyond any other religion, all chose the Torah, all chose the God of Israel and His Torah, and His sages, and His rules, and His restrictions, all chose it. They could have chosen otherwise, but they chose the Torah. Not because of making money from it, not because of gaining power from it. Many of them were chased and nearly killed, and some actually killed because of their beliefs in the Torah. Whether well, it's Rabbi Akiva or the Ten Martyrs, they were literally murdered in the most vicious, heinous ways possible because of their belief in the Torah. But until his dying minute, Rabbi Akiva, as they were literally peeling his skin from his body, he said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. He said a verse from the Torah. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God. Hashem is one. That's what Rabbi Akiva said as they were peeling his body, peeling his skin, and then selling the meat in the market. Same thing happened with the other sages. Whether they peeled their skin, one of them they took the skin and made it into a, uh, a carpet. Others they literally tortured in different strange ways, burned alive, all types of horrible things. But every single one of them died with words of Torah in their lips. They all chose the Torah. All of these geniuses, all of these holy people. And Shlomo HaMelech says, this Torah, this Torah has no falsehood in it. And that's why he chose it. What about those that were also smart and chose otherwise? Simple. They weren't as smart after all. Perhaps they possessed knowledge. But when a person has bad character traits, mainly arrogance, the arrogance makes even the smartest into fools. Be'ezat Hashem, this too will be a rebuke to each and every single one of us. 
that sometimes thinks we're smarter than what we really are, perhaps we can make new rules. Perhaps we don't have to obey the rules. Perhaps we don't need the rules. This is a rebuke to every single person that thought for even a second, why should I keep these rules? Why should I listen to the rabbi? Why should I listen to the sages? Why should I put my head down and be humble, fix myself? Why? Well, now we know why. Because those that were wiser than you could ever imagine being did the same exact thing. And if you are going to go into anything in the world and want to make a right decision, the first thing you would look at is the track record of those that did it. And those that did it have a great track record. And we need to follow that footstep. Thank you very much for learning with me. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless each and every single one of us to go in the footsteps of the holy sages of Am Yisrael, to follow the Torah, and to stay away from the arrogance of Hiram and any version of him that is still exists today. Even if that version is ourselves sometimes, when we think we're better than what we really are. Bezat Hashem, we'll learn more later this week. Call to Bachabatzacha. asked him what can we do to protect ourselves from Chavrei Mashiach. He says, Torah and Gminut Chasadim. Even if somebody does a, a nice thing or learns a lot or anything like that, it's never compared to bringing one of Hashem's lost kids that's been lost for the last 3,000 years back home. One of the beautiful things that we have in our organization is that we have both Torah and Zikri Rabin because we have our Kolels, we have our Avrachim, and we also have our Kiruv that we do around the world. Our lectures reach every corner of the world, Baruch Hashem, in multiple languages, but of course, we always want to do even more. Thank you.
while we have Kiruv work that we've done throughout the whole year, we also have the Torah that we're constantly producing more and more of, and last but not least, the uh, Chesed to feed the poor people in Israel. A very special thank you to all our amazing guests who show real Avat Yisrael by taking the time out of their busy schedule and sharing their ups and downs with us, all for the sake of Avat Yisrael. Yirgun Be'ezrat Hashem olech lechalek me'ot salem mazon one of the big things that we have, aside from this campaign, you probably see this poster or something similar to it, is also we published some of the recent results that we have, or at least up to now, of the organization. And one of the reasons why we do this each year is because we want to make sure that our partners, our donors, our Talmidin, know where their money is going. Unlike everybody else that, you know, uh, says a lot, does a lot, we want to show you what these results are. I can tell you from my experience and a little bit of knowledge about the whole Torah world, I don't know of anybody else, uh, any other organization on planet Earth that produces dollar for dollar what we've produced over these last few years. This is nothing to be arrogant about. It's simply Siyat Bishmaya Kadosh who helped us. We made every sacrifice that we can possibly make in order to, ha- to make it happen. Producing nearly 300 films, publishing 32 books, our own books, giving out 154,000 books for free. Giving out 154,000 books is not a cheap endeavor. Anyone that wants to do such a thing has to be completely committed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to his children, and most importantly, to have bitachon in HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his Torah. We also have fed over 160,000 people over these last several years. Each year during Pesach, the high holidays, throughout the year, we help a lot of people eat, help make sure that they have groceries, food, all types of things. And uh, you guys have seen many of the videos that are uh, that we've produced over the years to actually show you the people that are getting this food. You have here 160,000 people have eaten, nearly 300 Torah films. And then on top of all of it, we have 1.4 million USB CDs and cars that have been giving out for free. All of the work that we've done over the last 10 years on these USBs given out for free. Last but not least, 12,000 video and audio lectures available online in about 14 different languages for the world to watch for free. ארגון בעזרת השם לקח על עצמו את אחת המטרות הקשות ביותר בדור שלנו לתקן עולם במלכות שדי לא להסתפק במשהו אחד לעזור רק לאנשים מסכנים רק לאנשים ניצולי שואה רק לאנשים שלא מכירים את אלוקים רק לאנשים שאין להם כלום בבית אלא לעזור לכלל ישראל בכל מכל וברוך השם, חפץ השם בידינו הצליח למעלה ממיליון יהודים ויהודיות נעזרו על ידי ארגונים בעזרת השם. רק תדמיינו לכם איזה עוצמה היה לכל אחד ואחת מהשותפים שזכו להיות כל אחד כפי כוחו ויכולתו, לאיזה תוצאות הצליחו להגיע ולאיזה תוצאות עוד יצליחו. פורים שמח על לראות את השלטים, נעלה עכשיו למעלה, כמו הקצת חייש, את הלימוד. ברוכים הבאים, אפשר לראות כאן. כולם יושבים לומדים, איזה רעש של תורה, איזה רעש, איזה רעש, והנה יש פה עוד בית מדרש, וגם פה יש, השם הכל עמוס. דמיון הזה הוא לא דמיון כל כך רחוק, כי כמו שהתורה אומרת, בפיך ובלבבך לעשותו, ככה גם בדבר הזה. כל מי שירצה, כל מי שרוצה או רוצה להיות שותפים 
איתנו, עם הארגון הקדוש והנפלא הזה, שכל כוונתו לשם שמיים, להגדיל תורה ולהדירה, להרים קרן התורה, לעזור לכל אחד ואחד מעם ישראל, בכל העניינים, כל המישורים, מהילד הכי קטן, שצריך מטרנה וטיטולים, עד האיש הכי 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 מבוגר, שלעולם לא הניח תפילין, ורגע לפני המוות דואגים להניח לו תפילין. אם גם אתם רוצים להיות שותפים בכאלה דברים גדולים, בעשייה של תורה ועבודה וגמילים חסדים, ברוך השם, ארגון בעזרת השם, כאן, לצדכם, לשירותכם, יחד עם כלל ישראל. כמעט מיליון וחצי דיסקים, דיסקונקים, שחילקנו, כל הדברים האלה בחינם, יותר מ-12 אלף שיעורים, אז כל הדברים האלה, מתי שבן אדם רואה כמה ההשקעה שלו, אם זה בבתים, מניות, בכל מיני דברים, והוא רואה שהמניה עלתה 10% במקום אחד, ו-1,000% במקום שני, אז הוא מבין איפה להשקיע פעם הבאה. ואותו דבר פה, יש הרבה אנשים שברוך השם צופים את השיעורים שלנו, שיעורים של הרב אפרים, שיעורים של הרב שרביט, ושאר הרבנים והארגון, ועכשיו זה הזמן להיות שותפים בדבר הגדול שאנחנו עושים ברוך השם. an indication of what we can do in the future. So this is the time where we need as much of your help as possible to push yourself more than you typically do. If you typically donate a couple hundred dollars, donate a thousand. If you, uh, if you can afford uh, the uh, uh, $8,000, $15,000, $50,000, whatever you can afford, this is the time to do it because this is going to be the help that we have to help all of these Avachim, to feed these people and perhaps Bezalt Hashem one day to get that building that we've been uh, wanting to, uh, to build here in, uh, in the United States to build a community. But the, all of these things require millions of dollars. If not now, then when? 